Some people learned a new language, some people baked bread, others discovered the joys of soft pants. For saxophonist Ben Wendell, the pandemic provided the space for him to develop his latest solo record. Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidrin. Wendell's new record, All One, which was released last month, is a project that is both very solitary and very collaborative, built around a woodwind choir of saxophones and bassoons performed entirely by Ben and then joined by special guests like singers Cecile McLaurin-Salvant and Jose James, guitarist Bill Frizzell, and trumpeter Terence Blanchard. Ben Wendell is no stranger to experimentation or to collaboration. As a member of the genre-bending group Kneebody, he has always had one foot in contemporary music. And other solo projects of his have also been motivated by a desire to collaborate. For example, his The Seasons project found him composing 12 original pieces dedicated to 12 musicians he admired and then performed with those musicians. Ben played at the Village Vanguard in New York earlier this spring. He was joined by his longtime friend and musical partner, drummer Nate Wood, along with Harish Raghavan on bass, Gilad Hexelman, and Nir Felder on guitar. They split the week between the two of them, and Larry Goldings on piano. And I talked to him on the phone that week about playing in that sacred space, as well as his desire to connect and to belong, his ongoing negotiation with technology, and how his personal experience during the pandemic influenced his music. This was one of those conversations, there have been a few of them recently, that was actually a little more casual and informal than many of my regular interviews. This was something that I did because I was putting together a a news piece about his performance for WBGO Radio, but we had such a nice conversation that I wanted to share it with you as a full-length episode today. Third-Story.com is the place to sign up, subscribe, and visit the archive. You can hear past episodes with many of Ben's friends and partners in crime, like Nate Wood, Michael Mayo, Lage Lund, Larry Goldings, Julian Lodge, Aaron Parks, Eric Harland, even an earlier episode with Ben Wendell himself. And actually, I even talked to Ben's mom, Dale Franzen, in my COVID Chronicles series back in 2020. That's all at third-story.com for you. The third story is made in partnership with WBGO Studios. Visit wbgo.org studios to find out more about all their award-winning content. Patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast is the place for you to contribute on a deeper level. And you can, of course, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave stars. Tell your friends if you dig it. The whole thing. You know. Here's my phone call with Ben Wendell earlier this year. Hey, Leo. Hey, man. Hey, how you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. Is this still in the wake up mode? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Vanguard is such a man. Yeah, it's such a little sleep deprivation vortex. But uh, no, I'm in good spirits. I just did a uh, interview for a German radio host, so I'm I'm relatively uh, awake and alive. So I was gonna kind of go in a sort of a German direction with this one too. So it should be pretty consistent. <laughs> Let's start with the sleep deprivation chamber that is a week at the Vanguard. I mean, this Great. is I saw the second set last night, which Good. you even remarked, you know, the second set, I think in general can have a tendency to do this, but maybe particularly at the Vanguard where, you know, you played 90 minutes. I mean, you went well beyond the call of duty on that set. Yeah. And I sort of thought, well, maybe there's something about being in that space and settling in for a week like that, that you kind of lose track of time and space. Yeah, I really do feel that strange thing of it. It, it feels like this incredibly dense, uh, intense, long week, but at the same time, it, it's just done. You you blink and it's done. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's it's both these sort of polar opposite 
things that happen at the same time. It's it's really otherworldly, and um, but it is typical. Like as the band settles in more through the week, yeah, you just stretch. You just start to stretch, and uh, time gets stretched. And uh, it's beautiful, though. I mean, I, I I love that feeling both as a listener and as a performer. That you know, a, you know, a short concert can feel long. A long concert can feel short. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's just all about the vibe in the room. Yeah, and the way that your group is configured, you know, you have a lot of gears that you can you can go to because you have piano and guitar and you. I mean, there are a lot of ways that it can lean. And so I think I mean I don't know if that set was four songs or five songs last night, but it, you know, it it was you know you were really able to develop <laughs> the material. In essence, uh, I am truly, authentically having so much fun. I'm experiencing so much joy and energetic intensity playing with that those musicians in that sacred room. That I mean, part of me just doesn't want it to end. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So I'm not in a in a macro sense. I'm not keeping track of time too much because I think also it's that's part of the the journey of playing in that space is to just try and really be in the present and see where it goes. But those musicians, you know, I have a lot of history with them. And then specifically Larry Goldings, who's just, you know, I just love Larry. He's a personal musical hero. It's an honor to be sharing this week with him. And then, and just that, that new element also is bringing so many, uh, so, so, so many ideas, you know, what he, what he brings to the table. So, I thought having Larry was so interesting, and I walked out of yeah. there really thinking about the way the rest of you interacted with him and the way he interacted with you. Like I couldn't see Nate while he was playing his solo, so I had to watch yeah. Larry's face as he was <laughs> listening to Nate. And it was like an interesting game of like facial telephone to see <laughs> Larry dealing with Nate, and and I just thought, you know, I. Obviously, he's a very still a highly contemporary musician, but like you know, you yeah. guys are coming. You've all been kind of influenced by him, and he, you know, you even have this tune that you played last night that I think is tentatively called "Sco Vibes" or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. And that feels like, in particular, is leaning uh, into that feel, like on you know, hand jive or those records that Larry is on. Exactly. And um, and I thought how interesting for him then to have that sort of like echoed back at him a generation later and be playing with you. Yeah, it's very meta. The generational thing is so interesting because, you know, I I often just forget, you know, to me, I really mean this. Like uh, when I look to generations above me or or quote unquote Mm -hmm. that are younger than me or below me, but like you you just don't see age in music. You you just don't. You just see the musician. And um, there is that, there, it, it is true. There's there's sort of a, a feel and a tempo and a complexity to each generation that mm-hmm. they bring in an identity. And it's true. Like my, my the rest of the band, you know, Gilad, Nate, and Harish and I, we, we were of our generation and greatly influenced by Larry. But then but then because of that, it inevitably we're we're all on the same continuum. So in another way, even though there's that that theoretical divide, there is no divide because mm-hmm. because there's there's this thread that connects us and then circles back as you've pointed out, um, you know. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, I haven't even pointed it out. I haven't even asked Larry about that. But you know, it's true when we're playing 
a piece dedicated to John Schofield, who, you know, it, you know, it's not really one step removed. I mean, he's, now he's, yeah, he, he is part of John Schofield. So it's, (laughs) so I don't, I don't know what that means for him, you know? Um, but I've certainly musically, it feels as though it feels like home. Yeah. Yeah, I made another note where I said, everybody's got a pedal. I mean, not not everybody had a pedal, but I was like, even Larry has a pedal on this gig, you know? (laughs) And um, although he, even the way he used it is a little bit different. I mean, he was in there, I think, but his thing that he was playing with when he turned his pedal on was like a little kind of loopier. Loopy, not in the sense that it's looping, but more like in this kind of almost surrealist way. It did make me think about how you and Nate in particular have been engaged in this kind of dialogue with electronic music and how to bring it into the acoustic space, you know, whether or not it's like Nate playing rhythms that we would associate with kind of programmed or, you know, sampled drums and then applying it to the kit. Or now you also having sort of fallen down the rabbit hole with the pedals and the harmonizer and the, you know, all of that stuff and how that's that's a conversation that I also think is taking place in, you know, in your development. When I first started using pedals, it, it, uh, that was still extremely uh, uncharted territory. Very, there were very, very few horn players that, that were using uh, pedals at the time. It's, it's kind of interesting. It's like, it was really prevalent. Like now you have to jump back to like the Brecker brothers. Yes. The Ewe. Like, yeah, I mean, even pre-Ewe, you had you had Randy playing through a wah. You had Michael using effects pedals. So there, there was sort of like the first iteration of that idea of integrating, uh, quote-unquote, electronics with, with acoustic instruments. And then some, and then of course, as all things in music, it kind of cycled out, mm-hmm. and we kind of w- entered a more acoustic phase. And now, and now I feel like it's come back again, but but now with the influence of of EDM and and the the sort of the the music that we grew up on, you know, hip hop, EDM, you know, Radiohead, and so it's almost like the sounds that we w- that we emulate now are more reflective of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's the same pedals, though. <laughs> it's the same, it's the same pedals, but they're just being used to sort of express a different uh, palette. Yeah. Um, but, but for me, it was an extremely natural uh, evolution. You know, it started with knee body. Uh, uh, you know, I'm playing in this band. Suddenly, there's Fender Rhodes, and he's using looping and delay and. And suddenly the bass players use an octave pedal and distortion. And it just got to the point where uh, there were moments musically where I just couldn't participate in the conversation timbrely. And so I actually needed to, hmm. to, to, bring, to bring those timbres in so I could actually participate. But the, and then it just opened doors because as a result of that...
I, I definitely think it's a generational thing. And, um, you know, it's my hope. I'm happy to play a hundred percent acoustic set and I'm happy to not do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's my hope that it's just, it's just part of the, 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 the suitcase of sounds that I have. And that when the music calls for it, I can just go to that space. It's just an expansive tool. And, um, you know, actually in terms of Larry, uh, you know, we actually brought a, <laughs> a big analog synth for him too, hmm. that he would have used. Uh, but there were, there were some grounding issues and huh. we just couldn't get the thing to, to run through the, the, the house system at the club, um, without making this terrible sound. So he would have even been more, uh, in that space, believe it or not, uh, have we, gotten gotten those toys to work well that kind of raises a sort of karmic psychic question for me about bringing those sounds into the vanguard and i have to say i did make a note about it where i was like man this is maybe look i'm not down there all the time but i do think (laughs) that i haven't quite heard it go in that direction in that room and part of it is nate and not just the electronics but just like hearing nate just kind of rock out at the end of a couple of those tunes and then yeah and I was like, man, this is like kind of pushing at the edges of what this room is familiar with. And it's kind of funny to think you brought a synth down there and the, van, the go- Vanguard gods were just like, nope, no, not, not here. <laughs> you know, so, so check this out. This is what I think is so incredible about the Vanguard. Okay. And I, I, I'm, I heard this from the horse's mouth. Like yeah. I, I had the honor of getting to know Lorraine yeah. before she passed. She, she was there for the very first date I ever played as a leader and she told me about what the why it's called the village vanguard you know so vanguard literally the definition you know a group of people leading the way in a new development of ideas you know and she was really serious about that philosophy and um I knew I I realized how hip she was Hmm. when um when Nate played down there with Donnie McCaslin with with his Black Star project Mm -hmm. You know, the David Bowie stuff. And man, if you think what I did last night <laughs> was going in that direction, I mean, they went full on. You got Tim Lefebvre yeah. on electric bass. Yeah. They were rocking. And Lorraine was there and she loved it. Mm. And so I just thought, there you go. You know, it's it's not it's it's not about, you know, I, the the tradition of that place is exactly that. Yeah. The, which is which is the tradition is like yeah <laughs> bring it <laughs> bring 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 something new and I, I think for her you know i remember after she saw one of my shows and for sure i was using pedals yeah for sure and and stuff like that and she i think for her it was all about the energy of what you were doing was it bringing something new i mean i think she was very important to her that it that it was con- connected to the history of the room, to the, again, to the continuum of this music. But I think if you, you know, I think if you are honoring what this music philosophically is meant to be, then the, the, the best way to honor it is to, to be yourself, to be authentic. And it's a very, it's a very encouraging room. The first time I played there, I thought I was going to be incredibly scared mm-hmm. given, given the history of that room. I talk about this a lot, but the, that room spirits in that room the feeling of getting on that stage is the exact opposite you feel this 
this warmth and this encouragement coming from the from the space. And I think it's I think it's because of that. I think it's because of that philosophy and all the all the joy and stretching that's occurred mm-hmm. energetically in that room. So anyway, all that to say, you would think maybe that it would not be appropriate in that room, but in fact, it's very welcome. And I and I I saw it myself. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Lorraine dig things that one would think she would not dig, and she dug it. Yeah. So yeah, that's beautiful, man. You know, you're in New York right now, but I had heard that you had tried to live in Europe for a hot minute, or you did move to Holland and during yeah. COVID. Tell me about that and what that experience was like. I mean, basically, you know, all work got canceled. My wife is European. We had this unique opportunity to be able to actually get through the borders during that time. Mm-hmm. She's primarily lived in the States with me, and she said, you know, let's get let's go back to Europe. I miss Europe. I, I want to see my family. And I said, great. And um, we chose uh, Amsterdam because it's an incredibly expat-friendly uh, city. You know, everyone basically speaks English better than most Americans. Mm-hmm. It's like, and uh, it's just an incredibly convenient travel hub for when work did eventually start again. But yeah, that's what happened. And actually, as luck would have it, during that time, we became fr- the Randomly, uh, Jose James and his wife Talia were living in Amsterdam, too, yep. during that time. And we became kind of COVID bubble buddies. Mm. And um, as a result of that, Jose ended up guesting on my my next album which is coming out in april called all one and he did a arrangement of tenderly with him and that that literally was just uh one of those kismet moments our our paths crossed and and now we're very good friends But yeah, we lived in Amsterdam for about a year and a half. It was absolutely amazing. I loved it. <laughs> and uh, we, yeah, we came back to Brooklyn uh, late late fall last year. Is Jose gone also? Because when I heard that you were there and he was there, I was like, man, this is it. This is, we, yeah. let's do it. Let's Everyone's go. Everyone's left. Yeah, I think that, yeah, Jose, uh, Jose and Talia, they moved to LA, I don't know, four or five months ago. Yeah. So yeah, the Amsterdam chapter has has come to an end, but it was, it was really miraculous. And I, I felt so, we both felt very fortunate to be living there during, during that, that time. It's a very, very safe, quiet city, you know, very beautiful and old and just, I don't know, it felt great. And did the experience of COVID for you, everybody sort of came out of it with their skills. Some people baked bread, others learned how to use a looper, you know, different people have different stuff. (laughs) Um, But this record of yours is a lot of layers of you then sort of bringing in the collaborative thing that I think, you know, in a way feels like an extension of the Seasons Project also, right? Totally. I'm realizing now, you know, I sometimes it's like you have to take 
it's sort of like I'm just getting to the point now where I have enough of a discography that I'm starting to get a sense of myself, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. And I'm realizing a, a, a very big theme in my life, which will probably just continue in my life, is just I, I just love, love, love collaboration. And I love writing to artists and and sort of expressing through composition my my love of of the individuality of an artist and that just keeps for some reason that just keeps coming back to me again and again and maybe if i do enough therapy i'll understand <laughs> you know why that is but um yeah for sure it's it's sort of an extension of that idea this album like also is just um an expression of a lot of things that have been brewing since since i was a kid hmm that are just kind of coming to fruition. You know, I, I, I grew up in a classical household. I played bassoon. I played in orchestras. I have a, I have a, I'm deeply influenced by that world. My mom was an opera singer, you know, well, I, you know that cause you interviewed her, but, yeah. um, you know, so here we are in the pandemic and I'm experimenting with creating these, you know, 20 to 30 voice wind orchestras mm-hmm. basically, which is like, that's when you would have the time to do that. And it was coming together in this way that I was really excited about. And uh, so I said, okay, let's go. Let's go down the rabbit hole. And I don't, you know, I honestly, I think, I don't think anybody has done this particular thing before. Like I've been kind of like looking, looking through, looking through stuff, talking to friends. I know there was this, there was this one album that Claire Fisher did. Mm Mm-hmm of uh, clarinet choirs <laughs> and those were but those were tracked live But I don't think anybody has done literally, you know, thirty voice right. wind arrangements where where it's all done by the same person and then expertly mixed by Nate Wood's father, Steve Wood, a wow. fabulous, fabulous engineer who's done scores for IMAX and all all kinds of stuff. And he, I mean, he was just a magician because it's not easy to take a single person playing all the instruments and make it sound as though that's not what occurred. Mm -hmm. And so he did all kinds of really advanced techniques of panning of reverb to, to create a three dimensional sound that makes it sound as though, yeah, it was a 30 piece ensemble that tracked live.
you know, this thing about how you need to go to therapy to figure out why, why you keep doing this. It's funny because it's both an incre- it's an act of extreme generosity to write for, you know, inspired by someone and then ask them to perform the thing. And it's also such an act of self-expression to do it because your inspiration is yours. You know what I mean? It almost sort of doesn't belong to the person that is inspiring you. They, they're just doing what they're doing and you're experiencing the way you're experiencing it and then kind of giving it back to them in a way. I think there's just some universal primal drivers happening, which is just that, yeah, just that desire to connect and to belong. That's it, you know? And, and I'm, I'm, I just, you know, playing at the Vanguard, playing with musicians like that, you know, it is really, for me, it is just the highest honor. I, I still, uh, maybe everyone experiences this, but you know, I just, I still have moments of imposter syndrome, you know, I just, where I, I go, do I, I can't believe I get to belong to this, this crazy, you know, monkhood yeah. <laughs> of, of magicians, you know, and that's so part of it is that, yeah, just, just wanting to belong to this, this amazing, rich family. I sometimes think if I could rename my podcast, I would just rename it imposter syndrome. And I, and yeah. I, and I've sort of come to feel like anybody who doesn't suffer from it is not to be trusted because yeah, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, there's some very, let's just say there's some, some Oscar worthy performances out there. Yeah. And I, I sometimes look out in the world like, Oh God, can I, can I have just like 5% of that confidence, Yeah, you know, and self-acceptance, you know, but, but yeah, I think that's just how it is. I'm just finishing up that Michael Brecker book, mm-hmm. uh, that Bill Mikowski wrote and also been talking to, I I'm friends with Randy and, mm-hmm. and Susan Brecker now. And, and, you know, just a case in point, you know, just it's 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 actually greatly humanizing and comforting to know that someone like Michael had just unbelievable doubt, yeah, and and struggles, and you know, because so it's like, okay, well, if that guy <laughs> felt that way, I guess that's just how it goes. Yeah, you know, that's just part of the the job. I almost us. wonder if there's something about it that serves us because it it somehow implies that there's room for for growth still, that there's still work to do. Absolutely. And that's how it should be. However, finding that balance of self-reflection and self-criticism and not getting consumed by it yeah. is the, that's the hard part. Yeah. That's, that's the part that can really, if you open that door a bit too much, it can really have negative consequences. So it's a very lifelong, tough line to walk. Yeah. So you open with simple song, and I just wrote this note that said, "Does he think this is simple?" <laughs> That's really funny. That's good, Leo. What's the answer, man? <laughs> that is one of the oldest songs I ever wrote. That song's from like 2005. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is, and Nate played on the original album. Yeah. I do think it's a simple song, but at this point we've played it so much that we are, let's say, not playing it simply. Yeah, right. <laughs> because we've just played it so much so that, so at this point it's like you're hearing 
you know, fifth, sixth generation iterations mm -hmm. of a piece that when we originally played it, I think we did actually present it in a simple way. Yeah. Uh, but, but now it's just grown into this other thing. Right. It's like listening to late sixties Miles Quintet or whatever the tunes have just exactly. Evolved. It's like it's like Miles Davis, yeah, plug nickel recordings of right. the same songs that you heard at the four and more recording. You just keep going and then it permeates into just this other thing right so <laughs> and then you know i think there are songs that every now and then people stumble onto especially as writers that you just understand work in a certain way and you know you closed with song song which just one of those tunes that puts a thing on an audience and in a room there's something about that feel and experiencing that deeply swinging feel that is so familiar and so comforting. I mean, what is your relationship with that song like at this point? If I ever wrote a hit, that's my hit. I played that song and I'll hear people on it go, oh yeah, yeah. You know, like it's yeah. like, okay, I guess people like that song. You know, to play that particular song in that room and, and and to hear Larry Golding's solo on that, that's just such a moment where I, I really, you know, we, we talked about at the beginning of this, like how time changes in that room. Yeah. Well, I also feel like you could, you kind of travel in time. And I, you know, just hearing him play over that in that room, I felt like I was, I traveled back in time in the best sense of the word. Um, but, but, you know, for me, okay. So basically for me, Growing up in a in a in a household where I was listening to and watching opera, like I, I think what one of the things that came came out of that experience is a sense of drama, a sense of arc mm. to a con to a concert. And I really loved the idea of a journey. And you know, we presented some really challenging music to the audience, and I, I loved the idea of. We've we've sort of prepared you in a way, so now we're gonna we're gonna land at this song that is this sort of joyous arrival that's meditative, that's a that's a warm embrace, and it's gonna feel really powerful because of what you heard leading up to it. It's gonna feel like a bookend. Programmatically, it's one of those tunes that really is works well based on where you put it in the set. Yeah, and so it just felt it felt really nice to end on that note. Yeah, it's almost like the complexity of the hour and a half that we spent together was preparing us for the <laughs> simplicity of that final act. Yeah, you know, I think what all artists do, I think, I mean, certainly what I do is I, I try to express all the things that I that I love in music through my music, you know, but, but, but essentially, essentially what you're hearing is this vast amalgamation of things that I've witnessed other artists doing that really touched me that concept of going to see something and arriving at a point mm -hmm. um, 
and the power of that and, and the, the intricacy of, of like everything has led to this point and now we're going to get you. <laughs> I love that so much. I love that concept so much and I've experienced it so much. <clears throat> so for me, that's a really important part of it. It's not just the individual songs. It's the whole shape. It's the whole, yeah, it's all the chapters. It's the third act. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, um, so I'm glad that that came across cause it wasn't by accident. Yeah. I remember when we talked a few years ago and I asked you what you learned from playing with Billy Higgins and you said, I would have to be playing and I would have to be playing with someone else in order to show you or even to get there. Yeah. There's certain things that they cannot be expressed. They have to be experienced. Yeah. And, uh, there was a lot of young students that, that have been coming to the concerts. Uh, there was a very shy kid that came yesterday that went to the Eastman school of music. Like me, he's going right now. He's a freshman mm -hmm. and he, and he came down and he got up the courage to come into the kitchen mm -hmm. and say hello. And you know, um, that's how you, that's certainly how I, learned those unspeakable truths, mm -hmm. you know, um, as you go to the room, just, just like you did and you, and you just see it, you just see it and you feel it collectively. And then there's just some primal knowledge that's transferred over that, that just makes sense in this way that can't be expressed, but you know, you know, it when you, yeah, you know, it when you hear it. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know? Yeah, man. Well, it was really, it was a treat to see you. And, um, Thanks, Leo. Thanks, dude. Thank you. It's, it's always so great to talk with you, man. And it means a lot that you came out. So thank you for thank you for coming to the show. There he was, my friends, Ben Wendell. I love that guy. I'll be back in your headspace before you know it with another deep dive. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org slash studios.